A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're on Team Human, a conspiracy of hope. This is where we commit to intervening on our own behalf, to shrugging off the shackles of technocracy, capitalism, and individuality itself, and recognizing human value as a collective phenomenon. Catastrophe is for losers. We choose a different path. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, activist, journalist, feminist, and anti-gaslighting crusader Lauren Duca. What is happening is this political awakening of moving from waiting your turn, waiting for permission, waiting to be chosen and qualified by some mysterious, bizarre secret rules. Lauren's new book, How to Start a Revolution, offers us hope that a new generation of activists may just be up to the challenge that our generation has left in their laps. We'll also hear from a real person doing real things, Christopher Boozy, creator of Bot Sentinel. It's time to intervene on our own behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Thanks to everyone who included Team Human in their year-end gift-giving. This show is a labor of love, and all the funds you donate go to our editor and production expenses. Thanks to our patrons, including Russ23, Matthias Hare... Wayne Lewis, Raphael F. Font, Michael O'Briand, Back Truitt, for your support. You can join Team Human as well by going to patreon.com slash teamhuman or teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. Get free access to events like our recent appearance with the Church of Stop Shopping at Joe's Pub or our upcoming events at WNYC Greenspace or in Los Angeles and beyond. Get books, a membership card, and more. Team Human, the book, just won its first award, the Porchlight Award for Best Book in Management and Workplace Culture. It's kind of funny, but it's proving something of a hit with human resources people. Hopefully, it's also helping them understand that human beings are not mere resources to be extracted. Really, nothing is, not even rocks. But that's another story. I'm glad the manifesto is reaching people. You can read the whole thing online at medium.com slash team dash human, where we're serializing the book in its entirety. They're still working on the page, but soon you'll be able to read written versions of all my monologues right there on Medium as well. So happy 2020. We may just come to remember this past decade as the one when human beings finally realized we're up against something. We're just not quite sure what it is. More of us have come to understand that our digital technologies are not always bringing out our best natures. People woke up to the fact that our digital platforms are being coded by people who don't have our best interests at heart. It's the decade when finally the tech backlash began. But it's a little late. 
Shoshana Zuboff recently published her comprehensive surveillance capitalism to deserved acclaim, but the book's really about some decisions that Google was making 20 years ago to harvest our data and then sell it to advertisers. And the Center for Humane Technology, just up and running, they've called attention to the way that the manipulative techniques of behavioral finance have been embedded in our apps. And that's brought us all up to speed on the science of captology and addiction circa 1999. They're necessary critiques and they're good, but they're too focused on the good old days when the business plans of a few bad actors and the designs of some manipulative technologies could be identified as the cause of our collective woes. That's really only half or maybe even less than half of the story. It's blaming the developers, the CEOs, the shareholders, even individual apps, programs and platforms for everything. When most of these players have either long since left the building or they're themselves oblivious to their impact on our collective well-being. Just because the public is finally ready to hear about these tech industry shenanigans, it doesn't mean they're still relevant. We can't even blame capitalism anymore. The quest for exponential returns may have fueled the development of all these extractive and addictive technologies, but the cultural phenomena they gave birth to, they now have a life of their own. I think what this past decade's critiques have missed is that over the past 10 years, our tech has grown from some devices and platforms we use to an entire environment in which we function. We don't go online by turning on a computer and dialing up through a modem. We live online 24-7, creating data as we move through our lives, accessible to everyone and everything. Our smartphones aren't devices in our pockets. They create new worlds with new rules about our availability, intimacies, appearance, our privacy. Apple, Twitter, and Google, and Amazon, they're not just technology services we use, but staples in our retirement portfolios on whose continued success our financial futures depend. At this point, the digital environment is no more the result of a series of choices made by technology developers as it is the underlying cause of those choices. What happened to us in the 2010s wasn't just that we were being surveilled, but that all that data was being used to customize everything we saw and did online. We were being shaped into who the data said we are. The net you see and the one I see are different. Your Google search results are different than mine. Your news feeds are different. Your picture of the world is different. As the decade began and social media took over society, many people tried to call attention to the technology's more environmental effects. In Programmer Program, one of my books, I argued that we have to understand the platforms on which we're living and working, or we're more likely to be used by technology than to be the users controlling it. But those of us arguing for new media literacies, we may have been making our case a bit too literally and too too specifically. Because the people and the organizations responding to our plea, they launched the Learn to Code movement. Schools initiated STEM curriculums and kids learned code in order to prepare themselves for jobs in the digital economy. It was as if the answer to a world where the most powerful entities speak in code was to learn code ourselves and then look for employment servicing the machines. If you can't beat them, join them. But that wasn't the point, or at least it shouldn't have been. What we really needed this decade was to learn code as a liberal art, not so much as software engineers, but as human beings living in a new sort of environment. It's an environment that remembers and records everything we've done online, every data point we leave in our wake, in order to adapt itself to our individual predilections, all in order to generate whatever responses or behaviors the platforms want from us. The digital media environment uses what it knows about each of our pasts to direct each one of our futures. 
We can no longer come to agreement on what we're seeing because we're looking at different pictures of the world. It's not just that we have different perspectives on the same events and stories. We're being shown fundamentally different realities by algorithms looking to trigger our engagement by any means necessary. The more conflicting the ideas and imagery to which we're exposed, the more likely we are to fight over whose is real and whose is fake. We're living in increasingly different and irreconcilable worlds. We have no chance of making sense together. The only things we have in common are our mutual disorientation and alienation. We spent the last 10 years as participants in a feedback loop between surveillance technology, predictive algorithms, behavioral manipulation, and human activity. And it has spun out of anyone's control. This is a tough landscape for anyone to navigate coherently. We may be benefiting from the net's ability to help us find others with whom we share rare diseases and hobbies or beliefs, but this sorting and grouping is abstract and over great distances. We're not connecting with real people in the real world, but gathered by our eyeballs in disembodied virtual spaces without the benefit of any of our painstakingly evolved social mechanisms for moderation, rapport or empathy. The digital environment's a space that's configuring itself in real time based on how the algorithms think we'll react. They're sorting us into caricatured machine learning over simplifications of ourselves. This is why we saw so much extremism emerge over the past decade. We're increasingly encouraged to identify ourselves by our algorithmically determined ideological profiles alone and to accept a platform's arbitrary profit-driven segmentation as a reflection of our deepest tribal affiliations. Since 2016, we've summoned demons to embody and represent these artificially generated worldviews, Russian bots and meme campaigns and Cambridge Analytica. But these may have amplified and accelerated the effect of the digital environment. That environment would have generated standing waves of cultural angst in primary colors, no matter what. Then all it takes is an ideologue or an ideology to jump in and claim that standing wave as their own. Trump is not the originator of his demagoguery so much as the vessel. Ideologically speaking, he's less a tweeter than a retweeter. Likewise, Brexit is not a policy design for an independent England so much as it is a projection of one group's collective angst. And these aren't even the most monstrous of the phantoms we're generating. Incapable of recreating a consensus reality together through digital media, we're trying to conjure a television-style hallucination. I mean, TV was a global medium, broadcasting universally shared realities to a world of spectators. The Olympics, moon landings, the felling of the Berlin Wall are all globally broadcast collective spectacles. We all occupied the same dream space, which is why globalism characterized that age. But now we're resurrecting obsolete visions of nationalism, false memories of a glorious past and the anything goes values of reality TV. We're promoting a spectator democracy on digital platforms. And in the process, we're giving life to paranoid nightmares of doom and gloom, invasion and catastrophe, replacement and extinction. And artificial intelligence hasn't even arrived yet. There's a way out, but it will mean abandoning our fear and contempt for those we've become convinced are our enemies. No one is in charge of this, and no amount of social science or monetary policy can correct for what's ultimately a spiritual deficit. We have surrendered to digital platforms that look at human individuality and variance as noise to be corrected rather than signal to be cherished. Our leading technologists increasingly see human beings as a problem and technology as the solution. And they use our behavior on their platforms as evidence of our essentially flawed nature. 
but the digital media environment could be helping us reconnect to local reality and terra firma. This is one of its potential breaks from media environments of the past. In the digital environment, we have the opportunity to remember who we really are and how to take responsibility for our world. Here, we're not just passive consumers. We are active citizens and more. That's the real power of distributed network. It's not centrally controlled, but locally generated. The digital environment is built quite literally on memory. Everything happens in one sort of RAM or ROM or another. This environment functions like a big blockchain, recording and storing everything we say or do for later retrieval. It could be helping us retrieve real facts, track real metrics, and recall something about the essence of who we were and how we related before we were untethered from ourselves and alienated from one another. This next decade will determine whether we human beings have what it takes to rise to the occasion of our own imposed obsolescence. We must stop looking to our screens and their memes for a sense of connection to something greater than ourselves. We must stop building digital technologies that optimize us for atomization and impulsiveness and create ones aimed at promoting sense-making and recall instead. We must seize the more truly digital, distributed opportunity to remember the values that we share and reacquaint ourselves with the local worlds in which we actually live, for there, here, unlike the partitioned servers of cyberspace— we have a whole lot more in common with one another than we may suspect. Happy New Year. Real people doing real things. Real people doing re 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 That's right. It's time for a special team human feature, real people doing real things. We so often speak with people who are thinking about things, blogging about things, tweeting about things, retweeting about things, making websites for things, creating organizations and networks for other people to do things. But we very rarely talk to the people who are actually doing things, real people doing real things. So we've been traveling the world in search of such rare humans, actually in Involved in activities where they do stuff. Some of them even use their hands. Others meet and help people in real life. It's a fascinating and counterintuitive approach to making the world a better place, to do something. Today's real person is Christopher Boozy. You know those little CAPTCHA things that help websites make sure we're not bots? Well, how about something that helps us determine which of the characters filling our news feeds are non-human characters themselves? That's the purpose of Christopher Boozy's platform, Bot Sentinel. This whole platform is interesting on, on a bunch of levels. Bot Sentinel, you know, there's there's two components of it. There's the, the AI machine learning part of it, and then there is the tracking part of it. But I tell people all the time that Bot Sentinel does more than classify or identify bots. It also identifies human accounts that are behaving in an an authentic way that's harassing other people in in terms of spreading disinformation and then targeting you know certain individuals like uh, journalists or climate change or scientists or whatever. So back in 2016, I realized that there wasn't that many tools out there. For about a year or so, I was kind of dipping my toes into AI, machine learning. And I said, you know, this would be something, this would be a great project to work on. And I would just put it out there and, you know, give it away for free and, you know, have a tool. Because like I said, there was just nothing there. So I kind of started sketching things out and to try to figure out like what would people want in terms of the average user? Because I wasn't at that time thinking about journalists. I wasn't thinking about, you know, data scientists, researchers and, and all that. I was thinking about everyday people who are on these platforms and are interacting with these accounts and they don't know if they're talking to someone in Queens or if they're talking to someone in a foreign place or if this person is inauthentic or not. So I started thinking, okay, what what, what can I do? And that's kind of how Bot Sentinel started to percolate and, and, and form. So then I thought, okay, well, we would need to build some type of platform where you have the AI that's, you know, you can kind of like analyze each individual account, 
And if we did that, how would that look? And can it be done quickly enough? And all these dis- different things started coming up. And when you solve one problem, you, then you, you got another problem. It, what ended up happening is I, uh, it took about roughly a year to get it to where I thought. Because the, the one problem, not just I had and what other researchers have who are, who are trying to you know, tackle this, is what's a bot, what's an inauthentic account, because they're still within, you know, the group of researchers. They can't even agree on what's a bot, really, honestly. Yeah. We, you know, because we know it as being, you know, automated code that does, you know, whatever. But then what is a nefarious bot? What's considered nefarious? What's considered disinformation? What's, con- you know, it's what we ended up doing is using Twitter's, uh, terms of service as a guide of what we considered bad behavior and, you know, basically looked at what they considered things that were breaking the rules. And then we started looking for accounts like that because we saw a correlation between accounts that were repeatedly breaking their rules with accounts that were doing things that were nefarious. These were accounts that were systematically just going through and just trying to manipulate the platform. When I started delving into this stuff, I realized that it wasn't just bots. You know, the bots made, uh, believe it or not, a small percentage of what was really happening. And, you know, the bots were amplifying what was being promoted by real humans, but inauthentic humans, meaning people that were either getting paid or part of whatever type of group that was taking fake information, creating the fake information, putting it out on Twitter, putting it out on Facebook, um, Reddit, and then they had the automated, you know, accounts and stuff amplifying it. Now, I don't want to make it sound like I, you know, love this in terms of like what's happening on social media, but it's really interesting to me. And I know that sounds a little bit weird, but for someone to be able to put out there that, I don't know, Hillary Clinton killed a bunch of kids, unfortunately, and then the way that it can spread and we can monitor that and watch it spread in real time and to see how these nefarious accounts, and not that many of them, are able to get real people to start to push that. And you can see that network of accounts where it's a mixture between bots and troll bots and real you know, people spreading this stuff. But this is people with technology getting other people to do stuff against their best interests and against what they actually believe if they could know what they were doing. That's kind of an amazing thing in itself. So it's not the bot army, it's the human army. That's the weird part. And that's where the plugin comes into play. So you have the browser extension and by having that browser extension and you're when you're on Twitter, you're able to see the accounts that we are tracking and it will give you an alert. So when you're interacting with these accounts, you're able to say, oh, wow, this this account has an alarming rating. Because of that, I'm not going to interact with this account. To arm the end user with enough information. So when you're engaging with these people online and someone says something that's crazy, if we're tracking them and they see that alert, they say, oh, I'm just going to ignore this person and, and actually engage with people that that are not you know crazy or you know inauthentic or whatever now we always put the emphasis on the bots but the, the human component of all of this is what's really spreading this stuff and that's the reversal that i'm most interested in is the reversal between the humans and the technology that the humans are acting like robots and the robots are acting like people that we are doing automatic behavior and the term trollbot is basically what you just described trollbots are humans that are engaging in repetitive behavior and doing X, Y, and Z. They're, they're humans. When I'm on Twitter and I see, you know, the garbage and stuff like that, you know, I just want what happened in 2016 never to happen again, meaning in terms of, you know, just how things are you know being manipulated. And I was hoping that once we launched the platform, it would inspire others who are smarter, who have more resources to be able to do things like that. Thank you, Chris Boozy, for all you're doing and for being on Team Human. Thank you for having me. Real people doing real things. Real people doing real re- 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 was Christopher Boozy, developer of Bot Sentinel. You can learn more, support the effort, and download the extension at Bot 
sentinel.com. If you know a real person doing real things, please let us know at team at teamhuman.net. And now, our feature discussion with an activist and journalist almost exactly 30 years younger than me. It's so weird to say that. But in a couple of weeks, I'll be speaking with James Lovelock, who's 40 years older than me. So I guess I'm still somewhere in the middle. Lauren Duca made the headlines with her Teen Vogue column entitled, Donald Trump is Gaslighting America. It got her on Tucker Carlson Tonight, where predictable mayhem ensued, followed by an all-out online assault from the alt-right. But she's an equal opportunity inflamer, provoking the woke left with her plain talk on feminism and brief experience teaching at NYU. Her new book, How to Start a Revolution, Young People and the Future of American Politics, tracks how the Trump presidency is shifting a generation from alienation to participation. The purpose of your book, How to Start a Revolution, is largely to, and I hate to use a word like simplify, but let's say to make complex ideas about politics and social justice, to make them accessible to people who may have not yet done a lot of thinking about this. You know, and while there are certainly there are academics who maybe have thought more about each thing that you're talking about than you have yourself, you're at a certain place in the learning curve and you're trying to kind of bring a generation along with you on your journey. Simplify. I love that. I think that that work is really missing. And I thought, how can I do that for citizenship? How can I do that for the political industrial complex? And to give people those terms so that they can go out and be creative and have this foundation to stand on for the basic stuff of participating in a democracy that we are so egregiously denied that it, and then scapegoated for. I've tried to be funny here and I've tried to be cute and literary. And, and I thought that was all part of my, my job was making sure that I held my reader's interest, which I feel the need to say, because as I researched the book and as I read the work of the majority of political journalists in keeping up with this climate, it just no one is really making an effort to bring people in and to break things down and to be entertaining. And I think that it's our job as journalists to make the significant interesting. And we're not seeing a whole lot of innovation in that space. Right. I mean, I remember on the second to last day of the first round of impeachment testimonies that Nunes, who's the, uh, you know, the mean Republican guy, Nunes at the end basically said, look, this was a really boring day of testimony. This whole thing has been terrible television. And that's how you know the Democrats don't have anything. That was really shocking to me. And it seemed like the perfect approach for a Trump presidency that, of course, you're going to vote for Trump because he's better TV than anyone else. I mean, Elizabeth Warren presidency would be positively boring television compared to a Trump presidency. So (laughs) so it's dangerous. But at the same time, I see the logic of if you can't make social justice and liberty compelling to the people who need to fight for it, if you can't make civics something that doesn't sound like some boring middle school class, then how are you going to get people participating civically? I I know this sounds crazy, but our elected officials actually should be motivated by that ethical standard of empowering citizens to hold them accountable and to, to actually building out democracy. And so really the lack of accessibility and attention hooking tactics um, or clever social media use and like all of these blind spots from our elected officials that you can see in contrast with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez breaking down policy proposals next to beauty advice on Instagram is the scope of what's missing and the lack of elected officials attempt at outreach to the public at large and not just young people. There's there's just absolutely no effort being made to expand understanding of the issues at stake in a general local election um, in, in ways that require the kind of tactics that they're using to market the Transformers franchise or fried chicken sandwich is all conspicuously missing from this very moneyed institution of politics. And there's just the point being that our elected officials are not even demonstrating um, an effort to bring voters into the fold. There's just no sense of public opinion affecting impeachment proceedings. And I think that Devin Nunes' idea is like as if there's supposed to be some 
wild display to to hook people onto this tribal cause. But what should be going on is all elected officials responding to the full range of constituents out of allegiance to democracy. And this two-party system and moneyed interests have made it so corrosively top lopsided to honoring anyone but the American voter. And that kind of tells your story in some ways, what you were just saying. For audience members who aren't familiar with how you came to this, you were working freelance for Teen Vogue at the moment that the election happened and then that you wrote your Gaslight article, right? Yes, that's right. So I was an an entertainment reporter. I worked at the Huffington Post and then I was freelance and I was doing kind of long form, soft cultural features. And I was really interested in, you know, deep philosophical questions about who and why we are the way we are. And then I had this awakening moment when Trump won of understanding political agency. And and what shattered everything for me was just the fact of his winning. I didn't need an expert to tell me that it was an atrocity. For me, I think through the lens of thinking about being a writer and feeling as if I couldn't seriously write about politics, I felt as if, well, none of these fucking men know what's going on either. So I'm going to shoot my shot. And so I wrote this book proposal. And then the sample chapter was Donald Trump is gaslighting America. That article took off and it it gave people access to the term gaslighting in a new way. So that was a conversation about disinformation and, and how the president is making people doubt their own sanity, making the public doubt their own sanity and how we need a foundation of information from which to resist. And then that piece got you invited on Tucker Carlson, which is the one show and network other than RTV that I just don't go on for this exact reason. I never believed that he was sincere. I always thought maybe he's just playing this character. He doesn't believe the things he's saying and he's doing this role. But now I'm even more afraid that he and Hannity and those folks actually do believe what they're saying. But anyway, he put you on and, and rather than criticizing the piece itself, He tried to say that because you write for Teen Vogue and because other pieces that you've written deal with things like what Ariana Grande might be wearing during a concert, that this means you shouldn't be writing about your perception of Trump. Yeah, he said, stick to the thigh high boots. You're better at that. Uh, and, And it was revelatory for me because when the gaslighting piece took off in Teen Vogue, there was a conversation about disinformation and also a conversation about do young women care about politics? And being on Tucker exacerbated the stealthy condescension that came after the piece took off in such plain, obvious terms. And and that sort of is what launched all of my thinking was this question of, do young people care about politics? Do young women care about politics? And and then seeing this brazen way in which non-serious interests are wielded as disqualifiers of intelligence based on this like arbitrary cultural significance. Your response in real time to that was really commendable. You know, there's so many places you could have gone. You know, you could have gone to fight back in a sardonic, cynical way. You could have just panicked and cried. You could have been shut up, but you didn't. I think what you did successfully there was expose sort of the cynical underpinnings of Tucker's whole approach to this, that he refused to engage on what you were saying, that he could only go to either, you know, chauvinism or ageism or something else. And it reminded me, I was on the O'Reilly report on his second episode that he had ever done when he was just starting at Fox. And he had me on because I was like the representative of Generation X or something. And he found out that people of Generation X, like less than a third knew that the Senate had to approve a Supreme Court justice. And he was using that as evidence that Gen X doesn't really care about anything and we're all stupid and the country's going to go to go to shit. So he's telling me all that. And then I said, oh, by the way, Bill, is it a majority of the Senate or is it two thirds? And he was, uh... Let's go to commercial. And so he didn't know. 
So then I thought he'd be mad at me. And as soon as we cut to commercial, he grabs me and he goes, that was great television. You got me, kid. You got me. Like he understood that his whole show was about the entertainment of it. And that he was just as happy to be caught out as he would be to win, at least at that stage of his career when he was having fun with it. But I look at Tucker as next generation O'Reilly. He's not. He's not just playing. It's as if their identity, their sense of of who they are uh, is somehow to have a 20-something girl come on their show and correct them about something is tantamount to some kind of dissolution of who they are. I was shocked by the tone of the interview when it began. And, you know, you think about it now, Tucker has really metastasized into being, as you're saying, openly being a poster boy for white supremacy at this point. Um, But in December of 2016, his star had uh, not quite risen to the ranks of the Daily Stormer. And, you know, I just kind of knew him as a bow tie, but I knew what I had come to say. The, The expectation is that sabotage will impact a guest's humanity, basically, enough to completely shame them and embarrass them for the profit of the theater of performing the worst possible idea of what it means to be fighting for equality. And it's interesting because what we're really seeing, I mean, this kind of goes to my own minor academic expertise, but what we're seeing is a realization of what the Frankfurt group, guys like Adorno and Horkheimer and Walter Benjamin were talking about, where if you move into a, a spectator democracy, then this is the only possible endpoint so that people are not liking what they see on TV. And the only thing that equates to civics is to complain about what they're seeing on TV, as if tweeting something mean about you or me or anybody or Naomi Klein, as if that is civic engagement. That's not. That's complaining about what you saw on the TV. It's pushing everyone into this lonely punditry where, you know, you're complaining about what you see on the TV, complaining about what you read. And that is this total lack of critical thinking is even happening in that. There's just so much tribal thinking and and so much fear about taking risks about how we communicate in this time, how we do journalism in this time. And you look at the level of cowardice around using the word lie around using the word racist. (laughs) It's like, I don't know how much more of a journalistic receipt you need for calling Donald Trump racist than the fact that the man announced his candidacy by declaring Mexicans rapists. We have the information necessary to make the claim. And there's so much cowardice, I think, from our gatekeepers and then also from a public that is hogtied into what the average person will think. It's just been such a disconnect from people's ability to trust their gut. Right. And that's old. I mean, that's that's maybe 100 years old, you know, with Walter Lippmann and yeah. Ed Bernays and folks complaining about the way democracy works and that basically they're arguing that people are just too stupid to do democracy. And so we've got to have a council of experts who are going to make the decisions for them and then convince them. But that's how you get the situation where we're in, where you're alluding to this thinking about, oh, well, the average American, whoever that is, that average Joe guy, he's going to want Biden. And when they talk like that, it's a bit like going to Procter & Gamble and hearing them talk about, well, who is our customer? Who is she? The one that buys bounty, right? Okay, she's 35 years old. She lives in a, you know, $75,000 suburb of Iowa. And it's like, what are you talking about? This fictional individual that you're selling your candidate to in a consumer spectator democracy. I think what you're arguing is that it's not too late to give young people the civic education and tools they need to retrieve a participant democracy. The click moment is not about just resisting Trump. It's about asking who makes the rules and and asking who decides that things are the way they are and and kind of understanding that we each have a, a role. What the, the young people I spoke to all had in common was an urgency of action. They all said there was no other choice. There was no other choice. There's this still this sloppy idea of the hashtag resistance being anti-Trump. And it's dim, it's diminishing and reductive because 
people are changing their lives and their entire relationship to politics in seeing the horror of his win. They were pushed there, but it often has to deal with addressing issues they were interested in before, using skills that they had before. It's this untapped potential where, you know, I have one example as a a young woman who was a high school student covering her school board. She thought, you know, this is all wealthy moms and businessmen for some reason. Shouldn't there be a student perspective? She thought, I'll probably run one day when I'm ready, when I have this mysterious qualification, this mysterious expertise. Trump won. She said, you know what, that the way I'm going to make a difference is by doing that thing. She ran, she won. And it's just, it's one of many examples where it's just this kind of click moment. But what is happening is this political awakening of moving from waiting your turn, waiting for permission, waiting to be chosen and qualified by some mysterious, bizarre secret rules tend to follow the playbook. The, the other trick with it is how few people have a kind of basic understanding of the principles of civics. I do this show, Team Human, and I get all these emails and calls. Oh, how do I join Team Human? I want to be on the team. Like we got clubhouse and conferences. And I keep telling people, just join your local school board, join your local zoning board, you know, get involved in local politics or join Extinction Rebellion. You go though. I went to a uh, local school board meeting and there was a woman who got up and asked in a straight face during a budget debate, I don't understand why those of us who don't have school-age children have to pay the school tax. And nobody really responded. I I didn't, where do you even start (laughs) if people don't understand that basic idea? We, We simply do not have a public that has a full, concrete understanding of our rights and our responsibilities. There's this prideful patriotism, this aggressive idea that that we are free and, and that we are morally superior because we have the most morally superior form of government where everyone is free, except we're not. The individual's voice is statistically non-significant. There's not actually evidence of of us uh, feeling as if our voices matter. There's these widespread ideas of the votes feel symbolic to most people. And then we're banging Mm -hmm. our chest on the 4th of July. And it reflects the way that we're taught about democracy in school as a historical achievement. There's no reflection on the atrocities littering American history or anything other than America as a white knight savior in this grand timeline that's been totally manufactured. But what we actually need is a, a total paradigm shift in in the underlying ethic of how we think of citizenship and government actually by and for the people, in which the government is an entity by and for the people, which is creating the circumstances by which people have the foundation to participate as citizens. And like, it should be so obvious. One of the other problems that you're addressing is that our civic engagement has been reduced to our to our votes you know as if in a consumer society the citizens are just customers and they go every 4 years or if you're lucky every 2 and they cast their vote as if making a purchase like Ford or Chevy or Burger King or or McDonald's and that to me is the sort of end state television a spectator democracy is that you see it as a that choice and if you have no other way of participating of course you're going to end up if you're angry enough you'll vote for Trump as the anti-candidate and I'm wondering I guess I thought digital was going to change all that originally back in the late 90s when the internet came okay we're going to break through move from spectator to participatory and maybe I was just impatient enough and the generation that you're meeting is not so wrapped up in this sort of spectator once a year vote, which means almost nothing, but actually changing the landscape. I mean, there's such better uh, ways to get your hands on democracy than just a voting booth. That's right. And I, I think that one of the most exciting statistics in terms of generational behavior I saw was that young people are volunteering in huge historic numbers. And yeah, voter turnout is low, but do you know it takes way more time and energy than voting? Like volunteering. And so this this shift, this political awakening that is occurring not just in response to Trump, also in response to the climate crisis and gun reform, these matters of political conviction 
You know, you, you don't you don't need permission to say it's an atrocity that Trump won. You don't need permission to say I'd like an earth for longer than 12 more years. And you don't need permission to say I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not old enough to vote, but I'm pretty sure I shouldn't be under threat of getting gunned down in my school. There's all of this energy um, and all of this do-gooder instinct and a desire to leave the world a better place than we found it that is, is actually characteristic of millennials. I found that in the Millennial Impact Report. Millennials in general uh, have this altruism that now is getting plugged into political agency. And then when you, when you look to Gen Z, there's a similar do-gooder instinct and also a broader sense of equity. Right. When I see kids every Friday walking out of their classrooms to start working on climate change in whatever way they can, you know, I know a lot of parents and teachers are upset by it saying, well, why would they walk out of their classroom? Because the classrooms where they'd learn how to fight climate change. Well, <laughs> it's because the classroom is not where they're teaching them how to fight climate change. Right, right, right. And I and I think that the perspective of young people, one, is, is significant politically because they're affected by policies, including but not limited those regulating the climate, but also because the chance to inherit the future and, and the idealism associated with being young, the sort of clear-eyed transformative optimism I think that that's valuable to our social imagination. I'm interested, and I wasn't even going to bring it up, but I kind of want to now because we're talking about young people and their approaches. Were you surprised by the reaction that the NYU students had to taking a course in, in feminism and social justice with you? I mean, for people who don't know, they were sort of upset that there weren't certain books in there from more, I guess, more of the historical perspective, but they kind of made a public stink over the, the course that they did. And I'm, I'm interested, what, what do you think happened there to them? I thought that the course actually was fulfilling and that their final projects were impressive. There's a lot of rubrics and grades and rules and uh, wanting to be told what to do. And I think that it was frustrating to me to uh, sense that desire to be led and and told what to do and this obsession with you know the outcome of the grade the education system it just completely fails to incentivize the joy of learning and the joy of discovery and there's this obsession with decimal points and getting it right and compliance that is is chilling and actually so the whole semester, I also was telling them that grades aren't real. And, <laughs> and I was like, you guys get that this whole thing is made up. Like NYU just transferred upon me the authority to determine like the number at which your essay, it just was striking to me to be in the professor seat. And I was hoping that we could have rich discussions and come away enriched and, and more passionate and excited and, and more confident in the ability to, to follow our ideas. And, and then I'm in this hit piece like about the, the, the bad course evaluation is just trending on Twitter. And it was just this, it was, it was totally absurd in a way that was extremely painful to process in the moment. And, but almost already looking back at it, it's just perfectionism is, uh, my, you know, personal quirk in need of healing, but also a real expectation for women. And to see myself as this grotesque caricaturization of that was, uh, yeah, chilling. <laughs> well, it's really hard though. It makes it hard then to experiment or to play or to try anything. If we, if we live in a society where we can't fail, having not that you failed necessarily, but we can't even have partial failures without experiencing public shaming. Right. Where do you go from there? You just have to shut up then and sit quietly in your house. Well, and that's the, the other thing about the sh the shaming is it's the function is not working. So, I mean, I, I think that I do, I am deserving of scrutiny because I have a certain level of influence in the conversation, but the gleeful like bastardization of that possible excuse for this kind of a story just does it doesn't feel super journalistic to me. I mean, I'm a really earnest person and the ethics of my work are about building equitable public power. And I hope that the I, the goal of equality is is one that we all share and and are gunning gunning towards as as the ultimate um ideal outcome for society and i feel like it was really trippy to me that 
people who project to agree with 99% of those politics would be spending the time and energy to, to tear me to shreds. Even if, even if they think I'm silly and ridiculous, wouldn't, wouldn't that energy be, be better spent mantling some of the men in the white house doing crimes or just like better equipping people to participate in the scope of this democratic crisis. It's just, it's, it's, it feels like irresponsible um, at best. And, and, and for me, I was like, why would someone write something like this? If, 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 you know, I'm pushing for equality, I'm pushing to empower young women. This, this stuff seems like pretty obvious, you know, good, good stuff that, that, that I would imagine that they would agree with on its face. And then, you know, then it occurred to me that there were a lot of women named Nicole who were mean to me in high school, and they also voted for Barack Obama. So I think that there's a level of like, toxicity and negativity and mean girl, you know, nonsense that that then gets kind of threaded through the purity checking and the cancel culture and and this idea of, of creating outrage and like inciting a shame mob. It's, a, it's a, a, a thin masquerade to put this sort of performative wokeness overlaid on, yeah, vindictive sh- shaming. And those of us who are capable of feeling shame are really not the ones that should be being attacked. There's all these people who they don't even feel shame for like child sex trafficking right. and, and torture and slavery. And you can shame them for it, but they don't even feel it. They don't even, they're not even bothered by it. Oh, that's right. Yes. You have to, you have to hold yourself accountable to decency to, <laughs> to <laughs> your standard. As we can see from the continued presidency of Donald Trump, it's like, that's the thing I think that screws with my head the most. There, there, there's definitely a, a startling thread of misogyny in cancel culture where you have the function of its outcome is pummeling people who are aspiring to equality and, and who are aspiring to progressive goals. And then you have Brett Kavanaugh nominated to the Supreme Court. You have Trump continuing to be president. You have the media falling over themselves, calling Brock Turner a swimmer. And I think the people who are being torn apart tend to be aspiring to something better. And it's this really perverse incentive structure where when when you're trying to do something better, uh, the idea that you're impure it becomes tarnishing. And it's based on this fatal flaw of perfectionism. The idea that that trying to do something better exposes you to these claims of hypocrisy based on, you know, partial failures, as we said, or past flaws or, or tweets from the year 2012 or whatever the case may be. I mean, it's, it's, it's just so exhausting and it doesn't it doesn't leave a pathway for people to evolve. And at the same time, it's, it's not working on the protecting us from the most egregious offenders. Luckily, the young people who are going to start the revolution with you, they don't have pasts to be exhumed. <laughs> they, haven't, <laughs> they haven't made mistakes for which they have to yet be called accountable. And hopefully they'll be able to create a world where we're a little bit more forgiving of ourselves and one another for not meeting our own high standards, which are still something to be aspired to. Yeah, I think that that's part of what we need as a cultural shift and that I'm hoping can come from this is is, is having more sane conversations, more productive conversations that can, I think, be built most easily out of building a strong foundation of information from which you have the conviction of knowing how you feel and, and knowing that you know your stuff and then can act, can raise your voice. And it echoes through everything we've talked about in terms of Tucker and that feeling of friendly strength and in terms of online tribalism uh, and, and personal punditry and a lack of critical thinking. But insofar as raising your voice online or participating in the conversation online can make a difference, I think like every individual person needs to think about a level of, of humanity and, and of, of productivity and of kindness. And I mean, I've definitely witnessed in, in a really extreme form, the way in which humanity can be lost in the the way that we engage with each other online. And and I think it's all part of a cultural shift of emphasizing honesty and compassion and self-empowerment. Yeah. Well, and that's what, that's what I'm here for. That's what I'm preaching with the team (laughs) human is just, just be more human and humane to one another. It's so fun. I was on a panel with uh, Alicia Garza, one of the founders of of Black Lives Matter. And I said something uh, slightly stupid or not stupid, but just not fully informed yet. And then I was like, uh, 
oh, I'm sorry. I guess, you know, that wasn't really right. And she looked at me and she said, Doug, I'm not going to pick on you. You're trying, you know? Mm. And it was just like, oh, uh, thank you for letting me be, you know, she, she all she cared about was that I'm uh, pointing in the right direction and doing the best I can to get to the right place, you know? And then she's like, I've done my work. I'll move on and, and redirect someone else rather than, you know, where I am right now or my inability to articulate something right now is so meaningless compared to, am I intending to get to the place she's describing, which I am. That's such a nice interaction. And I think that I also feel like part of the the work that we we need to do in this shift is interpersonal work, perhaps especially for white millennials who are newly woke talking to our baby boomer parents, because a lot of, of the place that we need to get to includes untangling the white supremacist patriarchy in which we still exist. And we've been taught things that we need to unlearn and unravel, in, in, in especially in terms of looking at racial injustice and to approach the, the people we love um, in our lives and say, you know, hey, like, I believe you're a good person. And, you know, here's a fact I learned about racial injustice. And then maybe you share something in regard to police brutality or mass incarceration or housing inequality or whatever the case may be and, and offer it up, ask interesting questions and, you know, share the, the energy um, to allow someone to unlearn what they what they thought they knew and to, to to learn something new. I mean, that takes a lot of energy to show up for that conversation. Um, but I, I think that there's some some change that can happen intergenerationally and like think mindfully and creatively about the tactics of of changing hearts and minds. I, I think that there's some of that a lot of that work to be done. And it's definitely not the stuff we're seeing in cancel culture. And letting them say their piece with, without fear of being okay boomered. Right. Like trying to listen actively and then, you know, don't, you don't need to make an, an accusation. Uh, if, if your family member says something that is racist, then ask them a question that exposes it for them so that they, with empathy, say, can you, can you imagine how this would feel if it was you maybe, or like, what are the tools of compassion that you can, can use to consider how this might be structurally unfair and, and let them ponder it and, and come to the conclusion, you know, themselves instead of writing them off as a lost cause. Because I, th- I think that there's a lot of people who, who want to be good. And the idea of what it means to be a good person and a good citizen um, inc- requires actually a lot more work and responsibility to the collective to participating in these questions. And I mean it traditionally politically, but also just in a, a softer cultural sense where we, we, we need to kind of foster constant political conversation in the sense that we are mindfully and and, and compassionately doing the work to untangle the very ugly status quo that currently exists. Right. That we've forgotten that we're all on the same side here. Well, that Laura Duca, thank you so much for being on Team Human and for the work you're doing, for the water you're carrying up the hill and for accepting the, the pelts from both <laughs> sides. You're clearly a survivor. So I, I don't worry for you, but you've got my compassion and empathy for some of the trials uh, you've been enduring. Well, thank you. And I I appreciate the very productive uh, conversation. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was Lauren Duca, author of How to Start a Revolution. You can find out more about her work at laurenduca.com. You can find out more about her and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also support this show, get a membership card, t-shirt, or even the Team Human manifesto itself. It means a whole lot to us that you tune in. There's about 50,000 of you listening now, which is more than enough reason for us to show up. Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelin, edited by Luke Robert Mason, and motivated by you. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.